Well, last week we came to a beautiful part in the narrative of 1 Samuel where Israel finally had, an, had uh, enough of themselves and repented. And God blessed them with this amazing period of peace and, and rejoicing and prosperity. Everything that they were trying to get on their own uh, by abandoning God and using their own power and they repented and they came into God's goodness and he just provided for them in amazing ways. <laughs> and today, uh, we're, uh, after all that, after Israel finally gets to that place of beautiful brokenness and puts some distance between herself and the idols that she was worshiping, puts some distance between herself and all the things that were causing her so much pain, this week they're back at it again. <laughs> just like we are, over and over and over again. What they tried at first with the ark, using the ark to be just like the nations and, and get the power they wanted and fight the battles they wanted to fight, now they're going to try the same thing, except now they're going to try it with a king. And so uh, let's pick up the story where we left off at First Samuel chapter 8. And if you would, please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Uh, we believe that God speaks to us live and direct through His Word. So let's listen intently together as the Lord speaks to us through 1 Samuel chapter 8. <clears throat> this is God's inerrant Word. Now when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of the second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. And yet his sons did not walk in the way in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. 
And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And we also, that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your warnings. You warn us out of mercy. We pray that you would help us to listen, Lord. That you would unstop our foolish years and show us that the wrong kings that we so desperately want to run after, they want to do two things to us. They want to take and they want to enslave, but you want to liberate and you want to give. We pray we would see Jesus in that as we look at your word today. We love you, Lord. We pray you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever had that the experience when where you told somebody something a hundred times and they didn't listen to you and then somebody else tells them the exact same thing and it's the best thing they've ever heard? You know what I'm talking about? It's not you. It's the timing. The timing. They're just not ready to hear what you have to say and then someone else comes along, says the same thing, and they're ready to hear it, and, and they hear it. <clears throat> but sometimes, though, it's serious. Sometimes what you need to tell somebody is serious enough that you can't wait for them to come around to the point where they're hearing it. And that's the time when we, you need to do an intervention. We have interventions down to a science nowadays. We even have, there's an entire industry built around interventions and intervention counselors. There's even a TV show about interventions where we can like watch on the TV from a safe distance just the, the moral drama and the tension and fear of whether or not someone is going to willingly run straight into the mouth of the lion or not. Uh, but what you might not know is that God is the OG interventionist. And this story is a story of Samuel, God's intervention counselor, coming to Israel to tell them what is up. That they've done this before. That it's never worked. uh, And that they're going to try to do this again and it's not going to work again. Israel, now, they want a king. And it's not that they can't have a king. God says, and God made uh, provisions in Deuteronomy for them to have a king. The problem is not that they want a king. The problem is that they want the wrong king. Just like us. And this speaks to us too because we often want the wrong king and we are often enamored by the wrong king and we often find ourselves chasing him down the street before we even know what happened. Because like it or not, every life has a king. Every life has someone that it worships and bows down to and it's either God, the righteous king, or It's the thing that you're willing to ditch out on God for. And the Israelites are about to find out that these little wrong kings that we use to find fulfillment and freedom always end up just taking and enslaving us. And 
That's the bad part of the story, right? But the story, that's not ultimately what the story's about. This is the story of God's mercy. The story of God's mercy that that's what we do. We chase wrong kings. We get all wrapped up around the axle. Our minds become darkened. We don't even know where we are. We're the sheep in the hole. And God comes and he knows exactly what he needs to do. He knows exactly what we need to turn around and start following the righteous king again. And that's really what this story is all about. Whenever we are ready to run after the wrong king, God will always send a messenger. God will always send someone to warn us. And then, if we don't listen, he'll give us what we want. (laughs) Because sometimes that's just what it takes for us to rest in him. Amen? (laughs) Now that's the big idea. God will always send someone to warn us and then he'll give us what we want. Because sometimes that's what it takes to rest in him. Let's look at that one part at a time. First, God will always send someone to warn us. Let me tell you, let me tell you about the absolute worst part of my job. Um, what I hate more than anything is, is the point in time when you have to do this, you have to go to someone and confront them on their sin when you know for a fact that they do not want to hear it. Long time ago, another church, not this church, a long time ago, we had, there was a couple that we evangelized, brought into the faith, brought into membership of the church, and one day uh, the wife decided that she wanted to have a better deal and she was going to leave her husband and start a new relationship. And in one of the most uncomfortable moments of my life, I had to go and plead with her. Please don't do this. This is not going to end the way you think it is. I've seen this a hundred times. And that's what Samuel's doing with Israel. God is sending Samuel into Israel to plead with them and say, this is not going to end how you think it is. And so Samuel goes and tells them, and as the story plays out, story, uh, the, the leaders come to Samuel and say, we want a king, we don't want you. Uh, up to this point, Samuel's been leading them into peace this entire time. They've had peace from the Philistines this entire time. They've had prosperity. They've got no really good reason to ditch out on Samuel. <clears throat> and they come to him and they reject him. And he feels completely dejected. It's the worst feeling ever. And so he goes to God and he prays and God says, look, it's not you. It's not you that they're rejecting. They're rejecting you because you're the prophet and you are telling them about me. You're telling them what God would have them do and they don't want to hear it and so they're rejecting you. And so he says, go warn them. Tell them what's going to happen. And Samuel does tells them this, exactly what's going to happen, and what do they do? Do they repent? Do they say, what were we thinking? No. They say, no. We want a king. And you, gotta, you know, if you're reading the story up to this point, you've got to say, what is wrong with them? Do they, do they not remember the ark? We just did this. Do they not remember what just happened? 
Do they not remember the repentance and the joy and the sparks of life and the freedom and the happiness and, and the joy of the Lord that they experience? And the, and the truth is, no, they don't. They don't remember it because they have been wrapped up. They've been looking at the nations again. They've been desiring to be like everybody else. They think that what they see uh, happening in the culture is going to fulfill them. And they go after it, and they've gotten to the point where they're so wrapped around the axle, they cannot see it anymore. And the reason is uh, because sin is deceptive. People think, uh, if I get into sin, I'll be able to think my way out of it. That's just not true. You can cross over the event horizon and get to the point where, as you have forgotten about God, it's darkened your thinking, and you cannot think your way out of it any longer. Someone has to come and talk to you about it. They have what they believe to be a super rational explanation for why they want a king. Because sin always has a super rational sounding explanation that that justifies itself for anybody that asks you. And that is, Samuel, your sons are dirtbags. They can't rule over us, so we need a king. Uh, what they need is another judge, maybe, that's godly. What they don't need is a king like the nations. And what happens if we read through the story, the real reason pops out. They don't want God to judge them. And they no longer want to be involved in Yahweh's battles. Instead, they want their own king that they set up that they can control to judge them. And they want that king to fight our battles. They want to pick the battles to fight. They want the king to go out and get them what they want, not what God wants for them. But, but the tragedy is that they cannot see that. They really believe the rational justification that this deception of sin has popped into their minds uh, and they cannot see the real reason. They're going to do this about 800 times by the time we get to Jesus. And that's supposed to, that's to tell us something. Look, it, it's possible for us, for any of us, me, you, any of us, at any given time in the Christian walk to get to the point where we're so, our sin has so overwhelmed us, Galatians 6.1, that we cannot any longer see clearly and make rational uh, we can't think rationally about it anymore. We take our emotion has hijacked our rational mind and directed it to create reasons why our sin is justified and we can't think clearly and it doesn't, rational arguments with the person doesn't really help. Not even reasoning from scripture can really help because they, you, we can get to the point where we are consciously, purposely, unconsciously suppressing the truth. And here's what, here's what it feels like when we're doing it. This is what it feels like to me when we do that. And this is, what it feels, this is what it feels like to the person. If you're in the position of trying to counsel someone like that, nine times out of ten, they will say something like this. This is how it emotionally feels to them when you're trying to talk to them about this. They will say, you just don't understand They will feel a frustration and a loneliness 
and it will feel to all the world, it'll feel to all the world like you, to you, like it's not even worth trying to explain it to the other person because they just wouldn't get it. Man, I mean, I remember that deep, deep sense of loneliness in the depths of some of my sin. I had gotten to the point where I stopped talking to people. I would not talk to anyone. I wanted to. I wanted to say, I wanted to say, I wanted to explain to them why I was doing what I was doing, but I just knew that they would not be able to understand. They wouldn't get it. And so I didn't even, I ended up just giving up trying. And what I have come to see, what I want you to understand and see, is that that is satanic deception. That's the coils of the snake suffocating out the spirit of truth. In addiction counseling, uh, in drug counseling, in drug addiction counseling, where physical life is on the line, it's that sentiment that kills more addicts than any other. I, my case is different. You don't understand. Seriously. And in our other forms of addiction, in the other little, in the other little kings that we follow in life, it might not physically kill you, but it, that same sentiment will cause a whole lot of death as that sin runs its course. Uh, but look, so what I'm telling you, you know, I mean, maybe you've experienced this yourself. Somebody's trying to talk to you about something and you just don't want to hear it or you've experienced this in the past, or you've got somebody that you love right now that you're trying to talk to, and you cannot understand why they won't listen to you or why they can't seem to listen to you. Um, and you might be tempted to give up and say, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm just not going to talk to them. And, 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 um, but we have to, even though it's hard. We have to. And here's why. This is, this is a quote from a guy named Patrick Lencioni. He writes, He's a Christian, but he writes business books. But this is a, a quote uh, from one of the books that we actually use to build emotional health in our organization. And he said, he, and, and, um, he said, at its core, accountability. That's what we're talking about. Having somebody that'll step into your life and say, hey man, this is bad. This is what's actually happening, even though you don't feel like that's what's happening. At its core, accountability is about having the courage to confront someone about their deficiencies and then, here's the key point, and then stand in the moment and deal with their reaction, which may not be pleasant. Uh, It is a selfless act, one rooted in a word that I don't use lightly, love. To hold someone accountable is to care about them enough to risk having them blame you for pointing out their deficiencies or their deficient thinking or the ways that they are twisting Scripture to justify their position or themselves. The reality is if you do this, people that you deeply love and care about will make you out to be the bad guy in their mind and it will kill you. You will lose sleep. You will wake up crying at three in the morning.
But we have to be willing to love people enough to let them be mad at us. And so what happens if they don't listen? If they don't listen, then God will give them what they want, will give us what we want. There's a second point. God will always send someone to warn us, and then he'll give us what we want. There's a big old misconception in pop culture religion that says, if you get what you want, that must be God's blessing. But that's not true. Uh, My oldest daughter, Hannah, has discovered how to climb our tree in the backyard, and she's able to get to the very highest branch. (coughs) The problem is she's not able to get back down. So she got up there first time the other day, and I went out there, and she's like, Daddy, help me, get me down, to put her down. I said, look, don't, don't climb up there. You can't get back down. What if I'm not here? Get out, put her down, go back in the house. Five minutes later, right back up. Daddy, Daddy, come save me. So I went back and I said, hey, if you go up there again, I'm going to leave you up there. Okay. Five minutes later, daddy, daddy. And you know what I did? I left her up there. I said, I hope, hope you have a good time, honey. I gave her a little hang time in the consequences of her action. Right? Not long, like four or five hours. But that was it. <laughs> Eventually, I came and got her down. Well, look, here's super scary theology 101 for the day. Sometimes God protects us from what we want. Sometimes you'll pray for God for some super destructive thing that's going to kill you, and God will not give it to you because that's the best thing to do. But sometimes, if you insist, God will give you what you want, and then he'll give you a little hang time in it so you can really experience it <laughs> to teach us a real hard lesson. And he does that because he loves us. Listen, listen, to what, listen to what God says here to the Israelites in verse 21 and 22. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people rejecting him and rejecting God, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and give them a king. And then Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. I think that's a symbolic dispersing from all good and rightful protection and authority. So maybe you're wondering what happened to the woman that I had to go and confront about leaving her husband. When I did that, when I wept in front of her and cried and said, please don't do this, this is not going to turn out the way you think. I know, I know all about the guy you're wanting to go out with and leave with, and this is not going to be good. You think she repented and thanked me for being such a good friend? Oh, no. <clears throat> she made up several new curse words on the spot to describe uh, what an awful man and an awful pastor I was. And then she chased her dream all the way into a domestic violence shelter. That's heartbreaking. It sucked. 
it's an awful, an awful, awful way, an awful thing to happen to anybody. Why? Why would God give someone something they want, even when he knows it's bad, even though they know these can, they could be hurt by it? It's so that we can contrast experientially the wrong king with the righteous king. The king we think we want with the real king, a king that we need. One of my favorite passages is Isaiah 61. Jesus himself reads this, explaining that it's all about him uh, in the New Testament. And if the wrong king is characterized by taking and by enslaving, then the right king is characterized by liberation and by giving. And this one passage speaks to all of those things. So let me read it to you and then explain how it speaks to us about who the righteous king is. This is Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. It says, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So on the surface, that tells us a lot about Jesus, right? It says that he is the righteous king who liberates us. He liberates us from our enslavement to these little kings that tyrannize us. He liberates us from the ultimate wrong king of death and of sin and of hell. He liberates us from the power of the devil that seeks to destroy us. And he opens the prison doors of sin and lets us out into his own kingdom. But how does he do that? You know what says it? It says it how he does that right here in the text. And I saw it for the first time this week. When Jesus reads this in the New Testament, he reads up to a point and he stops where it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And most theologians will say, well, he stops there because the next line and the day of vengeance of our God hasn't happened yet. That's the second coming. They're half right. Jesus stopped because it hasn't happened yet. But it's not the second coming. When was the vengeance of God poured out on Christ? On the cross? All the justice that we deserve for ditching out on God after our own little kings, Christ paid for on the cross. His vengeance was poured out. The year of the Lord's favor and the vengeance of our God are simultaneous. We get the favor, Christ gets the vengeance. He satisfies justice on our behalf and makes us righteous before God. And then you know what he does? He takes our ashes and he gives us a beautiful headdress, the crown of righteousness. He takes our mourning and he gives us his gladness. 
He takes our faint and weak and flagging spirits and he gives us his garment of praise to wear. And then because he's given us all those things God is able to say about us, we are oaks of righteousness. Not because we become sinless, but because God doesn't see our sin anymore. And then God glorifies us in this way and in it he is glorified. Listen, none of your little wrong kings are better than that. Not one. I don't care what it is. Nothing's better than that. But if you insist, he'll let you try it. Because sometimes that's what we need and sometimes that's what it takes to rest in him. That's the third part. God will always send someone to warn us and then he'll give us what we want because sometimes that's what it takes for us to rest in him. I have a friend, uh, Brian Freeman from New Life. Probably most of you know him. One of my favorite stories is a story he tells about one of his best friends in college. A guy grew up in the church with him. As he hit college, um, and right after college, he ended up to, he decided to leave the church and, and pursue life living completely out as a gay man. And he ran the whole thing out, married the whole nine yards. And he eventually came back to the church, and, and, and Brian asked him, what? What brought you back, man? And you know what he said? He said, the hymns. He said, I could never get the hymns out of my head. I can just imagine. I remember myself having been raised in the church, lying in some bed that I should not have been in, thinking to myself, oh, to grace how great a debtor Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That here is my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And there's something that happens to us once you fully understand the grace of God. Once the knowledge of God's grace gets deep inside of you, you can't ever totally get rid of it. You can't shake it off. You can't wash it away. You can't read it away. You can't drink it away. You can't club it away. You can't relationship it away. It never... It never leaves. It haunts you. It never lets you openly and consistently dishonor God because you can't ever forget about how much He has honored you in Christ. It's always there. It's always reminding you about Jesus, calling you back. 
And so what do we do when we're in that tension? What do you do when the wrong king is pulling you one way and the memory of Jesus is pulling you the other way and you're being literally ripped in half? Try harder? That's what some people say. Double down like the Israelites did. This time, we really, really, really mean it. We're going to keep the law. And the answer is you rest. The Christian answer, the Bible answer, is you rest. I want you to think about, well, first, this is what Jesus says, um, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. This is today is the day of my favorite passages. He says, he says, Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, ripped apart. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Imagine that, God's self-description. God is gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is he talking about? I want you to think about the parable of the tax collector and and the Pharisee. Do you know that? The tax collector and the Pharisee, they're both in the temple and the the Pharisee is like, oh Lord, I thank you that you have not made me like these other men, sinners, whatever. And then the publican, the tax collector, he walks into the temple, he can't even lift his eyes up and he says, be merciful, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And look, we all assume, we hear that story, and we all assume that the tax collector walked out of the temple and there was a miraculous change of life. But it doesn't say that. Jesus didn't say that. He said it on purpose. Or he didn't say it on purpose. Do you know why? Because he wanted us to know what rest really looks like. Tax collector probably went back to work that afternoon. And Jesus, he wanted you to know what rest looks like. If you go back to work tomorrow morning, you can still rest in his salvation. You can still say, Jesus, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's placing all of your hope in what Jesus has done for you and none in yourself. And you know why it has to be like that? It has to be like that because that's the only thing. That is the only thing that has the power. That is the only thing that has the power to transform a life. It's the only way out. You can't double down on your efforts or the law. It doesn't work. But as we rest in the righteousness of Christ as we rest in what God has done for us and we say to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Slowly over time, God starts to have his way with us. If we focus on Jesus and what he's done, we realize that we are acceptable to the beloved and in the beloved, that he loves us and that that's not going to change, that he has us, that we're not going to be cast out. 
more of that gets into our mind, God starts to have his way with us and we begin to change little by little, not because we learn how to better put on a happy face or because we're able to develop some like discipline and habit patterns. But all of a sudden, one day you just find that you love different things. You just want different things. God changes us miraculously, supernaturally, from the inside out, and then weird things will start to happen in your life. You'll get a little private time on the computer, and you'll cry because you feel so bad for the girl or the guy that's on that scene, and spend the rest of the day praying for them. Your husband will say something so demeaning to you, you can't believe it, and your heart will fill with compassion, realizing the history of pain that caused him to say that, and you'll respond in love. Little by little, little bit by little bit, over a decade, God slowly is transforming us into the beauty of Christ. And so concluding, I'm going to say two things. If you're wandering, if that's you, come back. Know that the Father is scouring the horizon for you, waiting to give you a big old hug when you come back because he wants you back so bad. And if you're thinking about cutting out, don't do it. The wrong king is not worth it. Instead, trust the messengers that God sends to you. They do understand. And they do love you. And stay. Because God has promised to make us into something beautiful for his name and for the glory of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed with your love for us. that we belong to you, that we can't mess it up, that you are, because of your good pleasure, shaping us into the beauty of Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you. I pray that you would disperse the satanic deception that is always lingering, waiting to entrap us. And for those areas of all of our minds where sin has taken a foothold, Lord, I pray that you would breathe light into it so that we might look at you and trust you and say, what you have given me is good enough and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and to walk with you day by day, worrying about one day at a time as you slowly over time transform us into the beauty of Christ. Lord, that is our prayer. And we pray to you, our good and perfect Father, that you would do this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.